I've always been really motivated by understanding other people's faith traditions. I've always believed that, in fact, encountering and understanding a Muslim trying to live their faith doesn't challenge me apart from challenges me to be a better Christian. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with the Reverend Dr. Andrew Teal. He is a chaplain and a fellow at Pembroke College, a lecturer in theology and religion within Oxford University, also warden of the community of the Sisters of the Love of God and a trustee of All Saints, Sisters of the Poor. Thank you very much for making time, it's Reverend Teal. It's a pleasure. A pleasure to be here. One question to start with. If young you, young <laughs> Andrew, could see what you're doing now, would he be surprised? Or would your parents be surprised? Well, I'm not, I, I wouldn't go that far back to prehistory. I'd, I'd even suggest 10 years ago, Andrew, would be very surprised. Really? To find that, uh, not that I'm involved in the academy and, and, and the church is... And I've always been in, really motivated by understanding other people's faith traditions because um, I've always believed that, in fact, encountering and understanding a Muslim trying to live their faith it doesn't challenge me apart from challenges me to be a better Christian. Yes. So I'm not surprised on that. But the actual denomination or the actual restored church of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that would have surprised me. And that you'd be here as a visiting scholar. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it would. You know, sort of interested in, in, in orthodoxy and Anglicanism and all that sort of stuff. But when, and it's a well-known story, I think, by now, but when I first met Matthew Holland, who's now one of the 70, I believe, mm -hmm. when he was president of UVU, he came for a sabbatical over to Oxford. And we used to have what uh, I irreverently called Mormon coffee mornings, when we'd have a <laughs> chat and... And it was quite clear to me that his faith was really important. And we had a really good engagement. And he asked me, he said, I'd really like you to meet my dad. I think you'd get on well. You'll like one another. Well, I realize what a great honor that is to be t said now. But I also, my prophetic instinct was very wrong. And pastoral suggestion, I thought, oh, I wonder if he's a bit concerned at Matt's faith. I wonder if he's worried about him being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So I thought, yeah, I'm very happy to talk to his his dad about how Matt's a person of integrity and, and wit and wisdom. And of course, when I met Elder Holland, I realised that that was a bit out of, <laughs> uh, not not in the quite the right direction. Uh, and we met, and we we met in London first, and then in Oxford, and it was it became a a really kindled friendship, which has kept me going amazingly. And that was the beginning of the friendship with this church community. It made me understand and realize how some of the attitudes of the older churches are rigid, distrustful, and even, dare I say, disrespectful of this church community. And I, I believe it's really important to name that and to out it and with repentance, with the joy of repentance, to say, well, we're not going to walk that path anymore. Hmm and to stand alongside this community as an Anglican Christian, as a within the Western Catholic tradition, to say, no, it is not appropriate to castigate and to, and to sow suspicion. We have to walk together. 
And I can tell you that the rich blessings that I've known in my own life since that friendship and since my connection with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is something so wonderful and important that I want to share it with my friends in different religious traditions as well, that they too may be blessed. So I wouldn't have expected to be here, but my goodness, am I glad that I am. As are we, and we'll be privileged later today to hear you as a forum speaker with a theme, Building a Beloved Community. What are your earliest memories of what church is or what God was? Okay, good question. It's funny, isn't it? I think we all have a, a sort of assumptions about God and who we are. I realized pretty early on that there was a connection mm-hmm. between different people, not just family, but between people, ourselves and, and God and the divine. And I didn't quite know how to work that out. In my teens, I became confirmed. I lived with grandparents because mother and father were divorced, and they were a tremendous point of stability. Mm. And uh, I started to go to church on my own with one set of grandparents. The other grandparents were practicing Anglicans. And it became a long journey. And it was rooted, I think, in when my grandmother died. I remember wondering why it had taken the death of someone to make people at school more humane. Because even even those people you didn't get on with at school, they not just tolerated you, but there was a, an awareness of bereavement and the cost of that. And I was reading Mark's Gospel at the time, and that question, why did it take someone to die hmm. in order to make us more humane and more human, that became a really important beginning of a journey. And I guess it's always been, for me, ecumenical, and there's always been a dimension of interfaith. So although confirmed within the Anglican tradition, I've worked with, when I was a priest in Sheffield, which I think was one of my happiest parish ministry times, the Roman Catholic, the Baptist, the Methodist, and the Anglicans all worked together. It was a very, very poor area of about 28,000 people, many of whom were not employed for many generations. And that sense of actually doing together what we could was a tremendous sense of there's something beautiful about service. So that's how, I guess, I guess my faith, if you like, the different ingredients of faith sort of came together. Uh, I was ordained very young. I was ordained at the age of 23, which is not young if you go on a mission, I know that. Um, but it, to enter public ministry with a, with a sort of visible clerical collar at that age was quite something. And presumably a lifelong commitment. Yeah. And, I mean, I'm, I'll, I'll share this with you. I wasn't, I wasn't engaged or married at that point, and I, I began to despair because I, I saw that there were certain uh, ladies who would see a dog collar and run towards you, and you had to run like mad. And there were other ladies who you might want to make a, a contact with, and they saw the dog collar, and they run in the opposite direction. So I had a sort of little strop with the Lord and said, right, well, I suppose I'm going to have to be a monk then. And the very next day, uh, I was lecturing to nurses in Birmingham on death, and right opposite me, straight opposite me, was this beautiful young woman. And it was the most unprofessional moment in my life. <laughs> it was like looking down a tunnel, and she was the only person in that room. And she wrote on her notes, he's just right for me. And it was almost my wager to God saying, right, I'll become a monk, as if God's saying, you're not going to spoil a monastery, mate. <laughs> I've got someone just in mind for you. and uh, keep you in line. Yeah, that's right. We met, um, and uh, we were married, I think, two and a half years after that. We now have two children, and she is the most wonderful gift that the Lord has given to me. 
And even though she's a long way away, and my goodness, some of the times while I've been here with her, I had an accident early on, I wish she'd been closer. I've never felt nearer to her mm. than while I'm in, here in Utah. There's something very special about, about this place. Even when, when you fly in, as Elder Holland said, when he opened the, uh, the year, he saw the big Y on the mountain and realized this must be somewhere very special. Well, I was flying in from Phoenix the last, not this time, but the last time I came to the general conference. I saw the Y, and then as we were approaching Salt Lake, I was straining to see if I could see the angel Moroni on top of the temple. And of course you can't, because <laughs> Zion's Bank and the other buildings are all around it. But I just saw the tiniest flash of gold mm. and knew exactly what that meant. And it was like coming home. There's a real sense in which Salt Lake City is a place where the currency of faith is valid. And whether I think, you know, if you see the Madeline or you see the Orthodox Church Jewish community, the um, Episcopal Cathedral, there's a real sense in which because faith, it's not a culture of suspicion, it's mm. a culture of trust. And that's incredible. In today's world, I always feel that this is a very, very special place. And that extent of Rachel, my wife's not here, and neither of my family, but actually we are very close. We're being held very close together in this difficult time. You mentioned doing work together for the community with a, a few other congregations, different denominations, but they were Christian denominations. When did you first have the impulse or opportunity to reach out to, for instance, the Muslim community okay. or to synagogues? Yeah. Well, in my first year at university, when I was 17, 18 years old, one of the things that we had to do was we had to do a paper on Islam and Christian-Muslim dialogue. And rather than just write about different scholars— a friend of mine and I thought, well, wouldn't it be good to go to these different small little Birmingham mosques, of which there are hundreds? What a concept to have a dialogue rather than, yeah. Yeah. than write about yeah. it. And it was in the days before all the difficulties, because these mm. communities have now become a little bit more reluctant to welcome. But the, the sense of welcome and engagement, and the paper was pretty basic, I'm guessing, now looking back. But the point of it was, well, is dialogue possible? Only friends would know. And that became published at the age of 18. And I thought, oh, gosh. One. And I felt very proud. And then I look back and think, I think they published this to show what an 18-year-old thought, mm. rather than this is a good paper, <laughs> if I'm honest. Um, but that was that. And then the year after, we lo I looked at Jewish. I was doing Hebrew, and one of, I find that quite hard. It's not a language that follows you know, the usual patterns. So I thought I'd go to the synagogue every Sabbath Eve and ended up singing in the choir, which was, now that's something, trying oh, to sing Hebrew with the music going backwards as well, <laughs> just forget it. But that was lovely and another sort of traveling alongside a community and, and beginning to understand some of, the, some of the traumas, not only the Muslim community have in terms of immigration, but the Jewish community in terms of history. Yes. And suddenly you see actually the importance of God, the Word, Jesus is the eternal word of the Father. How important words are, communication, connection. And it doesn't mean we back away from difficult questions, but we do so with the twinkle in an eye between friends. So that began, that was quite early on in, in my life as well, I guess, 17, 18, 19. It was great to have that sense of freedom to do it under the umbrella of doing it as part of the academy. Yes. My Hebrew, you know, I passed Hebrew because of the, the synagogue, and, and singing it's much easier than, than trying to read it or write it. 
So that moment of discussing differences respectfully and from a place of friendship, how does that scale up for the larger world? How do we make that happen? Or can you make it happen? Do you just exemplify it and hope people catch on? This week, I was very honored to be part of a dinner by the Wheatley Institution here in BYU. The rabbi who spoke, he likes to be called Solly. That's not least because it's such a very difficult surname to pronounce, but Maya Solly. Lively, entertaining, honest. And he didn't hold back the academic complexity of his lecture. So after dinner, we had a, a lecture of about an hour and a half. But the energy with which he gave it was, was, was great. But the thing that really happened was beforehand, he had a friend who introduced him who was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who grew up in New Jersey with him. There was this authentic, fun engagement followed by a, a real hug, a bear hug between two people of different traditions, different colors, different races, different backgrounds, that in fact, you know, it is the Lord's will that unity overcomes schism and division. And it was great to see. That was worth it. The lecture, very, very, you know, brilliant. But the hug, divine. <laughs> it was great to see. Actually. It's actually divine. Yeah. In the middle of all of this and you choosing the path of both scholarship and priesthood, did you have a wrestle with the existence of God? Was it a choice to believe or did it seem self-evident? Do you know, I don't think anyone, anyone has ever asked me that question before. Um, I think there came a moment when the reality of God became just something so fundamental to everything else. Of course, as an academic, we, I, I teach, we look at the questions for, arguments for the existence or non-existence of God week by week by week. And it makes me chuckle, and I'm sure it makes God chuckle too. There's a, there's a wonderful book called God the Problem, and that, I, that makes me laugh because actually God's not the problem. Um, but if I'm really honest, I think that the, the fact is that the reality and presence of God is as firm a foundation. It's inconceivable to imagine God's love and truth and being not being the very basic basis of the whole universe. Uh, that sounds a bit pious, but as visible as these rocks are, as these big rocky mountains, this mm -hmm. such frontiers, as changing as they are in the different seasons, you know, the red of fall and, the, and now the slushy, slushy snow <laughs> of this, this time of, of, of winter, our perception of God will change. The reality of God is eternal from everlasting to everlasting. That doesn't mean to say that my understanding of God hasn't, hasn't undergone some very significant changes. But I think understanding and relationships different. Like, for example, you know, your, your relationship to your father or your mother. We understand it differently at different stages of our lives. And yet, we owe our very being our, to them. I think so. My, my understanding's changed enormously, and I'm, I hope it will continue to be something that's alive like my relationship to my wife. I mean, I think I can probably predict what television programs, comedy or food my wife would like after 28 years. But sometimes she surprises me. And I think, whoa, we're still alive. <laughs> Something to <laughs> yeah, learn. <laughs> that's right. So I think, the same, I think the same about God. There are moments when actually God's generous grace is so overwhelming 
it it sort of knocks you over. If you're comfortable with me digging just a bit into that statement, his generous grace, that's something you feel that you observe in in how the working out of the world? Yeah. I think there's a one or two things, one or two prayers that keep coming back to is that actually don't let I ask every day, please don't don't hold you know, those who seek me ill or, or want to trip me up, don't let them stumble through me a sinner, but let's let's grow together in grace. And for example, the whole thing about grace within the Western Christian tradition, it's sometimes been hijacked and that grace becomes this thing which means you can't do any works. That's wrong. Anything adding to what God has already done in Christ is is wrong, John Calvin and that whole tradition and stream. But in January 2020, before I initially was going to come here before COVID, if you come to work at BYU or be a visiting scholar, you have to sign the pledge about not drinking tea, coffee, alcohol, not using Ouch. drugs, you know, all those things. that. Uh, <laughs> and I thought, well, and I'll do this in front of the ward. I, I go to the, I, go, I sing a, a Gregorian mass, high mass at nine o'clock on a, every Sunday morning with a convent. And then I go to the ward, which is a bit extreme from one extreme to the other. And then in the afternoon, there's the choir and the, and the college chapel. But I thought, well, the ward, that's the nearest thing to a covenant I can make. So I read that out loud and promised and signed. And then, of course, COVID came along and I thought, so what do I do? And I thought, no, I actually want to stay with this because saying no to alcohol isn't, I, you know, I don't believe that God's going to kick people out of, you know, turn people away because of addictions or what they eat or drink. That's not the point. But there's this challenge we can, with our lives, with our own agency, we can model a life which doesn't, isn't dependent, rather, upon addictions. I can say no to alcohol, not because I don't like it or because I'm offended by it, or, but actually so I can stand in radical solidarity with people who are addicted and who can't make that choice. And I think the same is true about coffee and dehydrating drinks. And I think certainly it's true about, about maintaining covenant commitment to my wife, not giving in to psychedelic or other sorts of drugs. And I think, well, actually, it's not about me despising people who do this, but it's about me choosing to stand in solidarity, to offer the possibility that actually by this choice, by this work, if you like, grace can abound. It can abound not just for me, but for others. By It's not me trying to be an example, but standing in solidarity, saying to the Lord, Number me with those who can't do this. Mm. And that's what I understand, if you like, that that intricate, difficult relationship between grace and works. Grace abounds when we choose the right, as somebody said. Well, you're a remarkable example of someone who does flourish in the academy, the intellectual side and the learning and the scholarship, the history. And yet, to speak of grace the way you do, there's a stereotype that the more learned you are, the less likely you are to have room for God. But I certainly don't see any of that in you. Well, I've got a very low attention span. I think if I, my motivation in the academy is in order to join that wonderful adventure, to travel with that Lord who, who for our sakes became our companion in every twist and turn of our lives. And that excitement is what keeps me going. And that's what makes it worth 
exploring texts with other people, looking at, you know, so it's great for me to have been welcomed to look at some parts of the Book of Mormon and to publish as an outsider with people who are scholar disciples within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's a great honor to do that. It's a great honor to look at bits of the Torah or the Quran with Muslims together and to have one's own reflections listened to by great scholars from within these traditions. And it's not because you're trying to tick boxes and be, you know, sort of be liked, but it's about there is the mystery of God at the center of this. And that wonderful mystery, which within this tradition, and and I believe this very, very f- truly, that that young, simple farm hand of New York in the 19th century, not a German philosopher who'd spent all his life in Tübingen and Bonn <laughs> and wherever else, but someone who was working on the farm, had both the audacity and the humility to ask God, if you lack anything, ask. And God, this is the great scandal, I think, of this church. God appears to him and shows himself as love and lifts Joseph up and sets him going in a direction that will invite the whole world into a vision of our experience where every moment is a door for God to come and if God shows himself to Brother Joseph, he will show himself to us. And I think that is a, is a tremendous thing that the, the churches need to recover. Hmm. That expectation that actually God will reveal himself to us. And I think that's the great gift of the restored church rather than reformed can offer to the ancient churches. Expect to be interrupted by God. Hmm. Uh, Are there scriptures or parts of the liturgy that is a touchstone for you now? Is there a parable or, or an example that's something that's going working in your mind right now? Let me begin by another. Have you ever read something and you think, I really know this? And then all of a sudden, it, what? Who's put that in? Yes. And I think there's a sense in which actually living, engaging with Scripture, with liturgy, it will surprise you. In fact, you know, Almost something struck me, I don't know, two or three years ago when I was celebrating at the convent. And I almost had to say, please put me down, Lord, because I've got something to do. It was that sense in which it was such a, it was such an, a, a wonderful moment. And there was, I don't tell many people this, I have told one or two very few people. There was an experience of at the convent once, it was a really cold winter's day. And it was when you lift up the, the bread, your fin- I've noticed my fingers were the same color as the white. So I thought, oh. And all of a sudden, you realize that actually that's the point, that your own life and the gift of this sacrament has to be one. And the moment, at that moment, if you would that all people would be saved, you must become Eucharist. Now, where that came from, I don't know, but it's in my book. <laughs> Other bits of scripture or bits of the tradition. I love the story where the old man is trying to defend Nephi from his brothers and says he he doesn't seek authority over you, but the glory of God and the eternal welfare and your eternal welfare. And that's, in a sense, a sort of touchstone for me of what life, ministry, discipleship is about. It's not about acquiring anything. It's not about asserting yourself over other people, but but finding and enjoying and falling before that transcendent beauty, that magnificent reality of, who, of God's who God is, and 
seeking one's brothers and sisters' eternal welfare. So that's a text. There's loads of texts, but they, they come and go each day, I think. One of the lovely things, that, and I find it a great privilege, is, is saying the office of the church, which means that there's a pray for about an hour every morning, and do do lots of readings of scripture and of the saints. And of uh, in that context, I will always read a chapter of either the Book of Mormon or of Doctrine and Covenants or the Pearl of Great Price as well as other people, ancient saints and all the rest of it. And it sounds like a great mixture. It sounds, mm-hmm. The danger is, you know, kids at school we, in, in the UK have got this wonderful thing called plasticine. I don't know whether you have this in this country too. It's like a sort of Play-Doh. Yes, yes. The difficulty is, of course, when you play with it, it all becomes this horrible brown colour at the end of the day. All the colours get sort of moulded together. I don't want our faiths to be messed up in that way, but to have their own integrity and worth and that dignity of being respected by one another. I think that's the important thing. And I think scholarship and spirituality, discipleship and hard work can actually work together. I don't think, you know, they're they're not opposites. So it's interesting you mentioned that. There is this image of the arrogant scholar who writes everything off and thinks of themselves as the judge of everything. Well, that's, that's not the only way and it's not a way to do theology, I don't think particularly within these two traditions. Interesting that you, you're you part of a, the life of a convent because of how you participate there, and then also you're out in the larger world. To me, that seems to talk about the two things, the, the contemplation, the hour of prayer, whatever it might be, but that that has to lead to action. Yeah. Does it have to, or, or is that when it becomes faith? I think that, I think that moment when you realize having that tremendous luxury of being able to spend time engaging with tradition, praying for other people. One of the things I do is have a prayer book where people are in it and it's getting very big. But it's good. It's not about me turning up, knocking on heaven's door and saying, please sort these people out. It's about engaging and remembering in the presence of God and saying, please number me with these people, even the ones who I don't particularly like and those who don't like me. The point is, it's more important that we pray for one another and, and support and sustain one another. And there's a real sense every morning, it's actually at the end of it, there's that moment where you think, let me be aware there's nothing that's going to happen this day that is outside the will of God. Nothing, even if this radio program collapses or even if what I'm doing in a moment, the, uh, the forum, you know, if the lights go out, well, you know, we have to laugh at that. <laughs> nothing, there is nothing that is beyond God's will, and nothing that's unredeemable. No person who is beyond the pale. And I think it gives you that sense of empathy and, and identity with, with everybody on earth, with those with awful responsibilities, world leaders, and those without any sense of given dignity by the world in which they live. And it's almost saying, number me with all of these, and, and in that mix, use me as you will. I think it does move from that contemplation and understanding to bold action uh, when you can dare to reach out. One of the things I say to students, these prayer book things, is one of the cost of me teaching you, I will say to them, is that your college will pay my college per hour, which is great, but not for me. And the other thing is I will pray for you on the 26th day or whatever it is of the month for the rest of my life until I die. That causes a bit of a shock. And one or two students have said, 
that's very entitled of you. <laughs> and I, that made me chuckle. And one of the students who then, perhaps two or three months later, knocked on the door and said, I know it's not the 26th of the month. This was the one who thought it was entitled. But I'd like you to pray for me and this is why. And I found that just sticking your neck out at the beginning and owning the fact that actually I come to this not from a neutral position. I'm not going to look at the New Testament like an archaeologist would look at bones or, or bits of a building. These are living, living things. And I find that's a sort of way into just owning up. And that enables students. We, I teach the Jesus paper in the university. And we have people who are, last time rather, we had a Muslim student, a Buddhist student, and they were in the same group. And that was extraordinary. Both of them got the very top marks because they engaged with who Jesus is and brought their own questions to it. It was alive. And I think if, if theology, if our faith, if, if our questioning, seeking understanding is really authentic, if we ask real questions, difficult questions. Remember at conference three or four weeks ago, somebody said you don't go into a, into a courtroom and ask a question you don't know the answer yes. to. The wonderful thing about dialogue and faith is that we ask each other questions that we don't know the answer to. And we find questions that we didn't know needed ans- asking. But we do that in terms of a relationship and friendship. Um, By the way, thank you again. What a pleasure to learn from you. Is there something I should ask, but I don't know to ask you? Well, I want to say that, which I will be saying out loud in the forum, but sitting in that in the house where I'm now sitting, having had serious skin grafts and goodness knows mm. what else I've been here, reading the end of Doctrine and Covenants where Brigham Young writes to, I think it's called the Omaha Nation, to the saints, ready to go west. Mm-hmm. In to, winter quarters, yes. That's right, to all members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and those who travel with them. Those six words filled me with such joy and embrace that I wept because I know that that's my role, to travel with this community, and I promise to do that. And it's going to be a long journey because lots of people are still very suspicious of, inverted commas, the Mormons uh-huh. and things like the Book of Mormon, the stage show. Whether or not that sort of either helps or hinders, I've yet to really think about it. But it's mm. deeply offensive in many ways. And what I want to say is however long it takes and whatever ridicule might come and suspicion, I think we don't face that alone. We face that together as traveling companions. And that's what I commit to. Reverend Dr. Andrew Teal, thank you so much for speaking with me today in good faith. A pleasure. That's our time for today. Thanks to Reverend Dr. Andrew Teal for generously sharing his stories and his faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Email us at ingoodfaith at byu.edu. And if you enjoy the show, be sure you leave a comment or a review where you get your podcasts. Help spread the word. All of our episodes are online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith Our Twitter feed is at InGoodFaithBYU. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith.